Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Michael Van, the author of The Great Hanoi Rat Hunt, Empire, Disease, and Modernity in French Colonial Vietnam, one of the latest titles in Oxford University Press's very cool graphic history series. The book was published in 2019 with illustrations by Liz Clark. And I'll just add that as a big fan of graphic histories, I'm especially excited because it's the first book of its kind that I've had the privilege of reading for new books in French studies. Hi there, Mike. Hey, how are you doing, Roxanne? I'm doing just great. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. My pleasure. Could you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in working on France and its colonial empire? Well, I sort of came to French history through the back door. I initially, um, starting when I was about age 16, wanted to be a historian of Southeast Asia. And then I wanted to be a historian as an undergraduate, wanted to do the Soviet Union. This was during the, the 80s. And then the Cold War came to a crashing end and the rug was pulled out from underneath Russian and Soviet uh, studies. But more importantly, I flunked out of Russian language. <laughs> so I wasn't going to be a Soviet historian. That'll do it. What, what I had been interested in was actually Soviet foreign policy in Southeast Asia. And so I was interested in, in great power interactions with Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. So um, how about imperialism? How about colonialism? And I already had French in the sort of Eurocentric uh, education that I received in high school and through undergraduate, France was the center of history. So that seemed like the, you know, French history is the default. And um, as a graduate student, I worked with Tyler Stovall and I said that I wanted to do France's interaction with Southeast Asia. Actually, even before that, his advice was to do something on the French empire. And he was uh, an urban historian and wanted me to do a city. So my first idea was Papa Ete, Hmm. capital of Tahiti. And at that point, I had hair down to my chest and was probably wearing surfing board shorts in his office and no <laughs> shoes. And he took one look at me and said, I'm not sending you to Tahiti. 
pick another city. So <laughs> I looked at the literature and looked at my interests and Hanoi was underdeveloped in the historiography at that point. And so Surfer Boy did not get to go to Tahiti. He got sent to uh, <laughs> sent to uh, Northern Vietnam and Hanoi. In my imagination, that scene is like somehow you and Tyler Stovall in Point Break. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Oh. That's what I'm doing too. Yeah, yeah, that's probably not too far off. Or um, Spicoli and Mr. Hand, in fact, <laughs> the Ridgemont High. You know, Tyler from Ohio um, didn't know quite what to make of his first graduate student, the surfer, <laughs> but uh, he he worked with me. That's great. Yeah. So anyway, that's how I that's how I came to study Hanoi, and um, so now I, I really sort of have feet in two worlds, um, France and Europe, but more and more Southeast Asia and Vietnam, but also work in Cambodia and Indonesia. Right. Mike, there are so many questions I want to ask you about this book. And I mean, obviously that's imbricated, but they're sort of divided into these categories like the great Hanoi rat hunt and this history that you've worked on in other forms and article that, you know, got a lot of attention and part of your dissertation, but then also this new form that you've mobilized this story in and through the the graphic history. So I guess before I ask you about either one of those categories of things, do you think you could give us the thumbnail sketch of the great rat hunt, the story that's the focus of this book? Of of the actual history, yeah. So France um, starts off its conquest in Southeast Asia in the 1850s and takes the area around Saigon and then Cambodia, and bit by bit over the course of several decades, they wind up in possession of um, all of what's now Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. And in the 1890s, um, Hanoi was established as the capital city of this Indochinese federation. Mm -hmm. And the governor general, Paul Dumer, who will go on to be president of France before he's assassinated in the 1930s, he really wanted to make Hanoi this sort of showcase for the French civilizing mission, make it this great imperial symbol, uh, you know, a second Paris. So he built up uh, the French quarter of Hanoi. And in this time, um, after Haussmann's rebuilt Paris, so we're, we're talking 1890s, early 1900, you have the example of what Haussmann had done in Paris, and especially the example of the great Parisian sewers. Mm. And sewers are this important symbol of modernity. If you think about Donald Reed's classic book on Parisian sewers and sewermen, um, that was an inspiration for, uh, for, for my work here. So they, they built these state-of-the-art sewers in the French neighborhoods. The Vietnamese neighborhoods got sort of a rudimentary drainage system, but not the running water, not the flush toilets, not the really great water and sewer system in the French neighborhood. And so rats get in there. And rats find these places to be absolutely wonderful, fresh ecosystems with no predators, all the things rats like, places to hide, mm-hmm. stinky, gross stuff to eat, and plenty of space to reproduce. You know, here's the first irony is that the the rats become a problem in the French Quarter right. and not, not as much in the Vietnamese Quarter because they don't have those sewers. Right. And then it gets more serious because in the same time, um, 1890s, you were looking at the origins of the third bubonic plague pandemic. Right. The first is Justinian's plague in the late antiquity. The second plague pandemic is the Black Death, the famous one of the 14th century. And then the third plague pandemic starts in the 1850s in Yunnan, China, and then goes global in the 1890s. And 
makes its way around the world on the new industrial infrastructure of um, the Western empires. So steamships and railways spread rats and the fleas and the plague from South China around the world. And so Hanoi, having been brought into this new imperial network of industrialized transportation, becomes the site of plague outbreak. Mm -hmm. And they're terrified. So what do you do? Well, how about kill all the rats? So how do you kill the rats? Well, you've, you've had these Vietnamese sewer workers that built the sewers and have been maintaining the sewers. So tell them to go in there and kill rats. Well, after about two, two days, these sewer workers come back up and say, hey, we're trained and skilled laborers. We're not coolie laborers, derogatory term for you know, manual labor in Asia. We're not coolies. We're not doing this. So they decide, okay, well, let's turn to um, the community as a whole. And they put out a bounty on the rats and say, okay, four pennies for every, every rat, dead rat you bring into city hall. And the next day, a couple hundred rats come in, and then a few thousand rats come in the following day. And the people at City Hall say, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't bring these dead rats into City Hall. This is disgusting. Okay, okay. Well, how about this? We'll kill the rat, cut off the tail, hand in the tail at City Hall. We'll give you a couple pennies for that. <laughs> and that goes great. And for about three months in 1902, thousands of rats are, or rat tails are being brought mm-hmm. in a day at one point. Over 20,000 rats um, are recorded as having been killed in Hanoi in a single wow. day. So things seem to be going great, right? <laughs> Fantastic. The French have, uh, authorities have figured this out until in um, late June, someone, a uh, health inspector, uh, is on the border of Hanoi, the, the municipal city limits, and sees a rat run by with, <laughs> wait for it, no tail. Right. So then they start to investigate and they discover, okay, it's worse than that. They're actually farming rats just outside the city limits. And then they discover a, a colony-wide smuggling network bringing rats to the city of Hanoi. So <laughs> it's this, this unintended consequence, what's in economics terms called a perverse incentive of a government policy that's supposed to eliminate something and backfires and increases the incidence of right. supposed to be eliminated. So they give up, the plague comes, wreaks havoc, and the French have to move on and figure out other ways to deal with this. It's so fascinating to me and so productive. You get to trace the history of French imperialism and colonialism, but also imperialism and industrialization around the world you know, history of empire, history of medicine and disease, urban history, questions about modernity. It's both a French and a Vietnamese history. It's a story of domination and resistance and the contradictions within imperialism. I mean, so much is going on in this story. Can you tell us like how this happened and why or how you kind of chose to pursue this? When I was doing my graduate research in France, um, trained by Tyler Stovall in traditional urban history and Mm -hmm. social history, I um, was reading all the documents I'm supposed to read, the tax records, the government reports on how many kilometers of roads are built and how many telephone poles are put up and, and so forth. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm doing my work. I'm, get, I'm getting a good portrait of colonial Hanoi, showing it's a, it's a divided city. I'm able to illustrate how white supremacy is baked into the urbanist project mm-hmm. in Hanoi with the quarter system and so forth and very unequal urban infrastructure and so forth. And so everything's going great, except for that kind of research 
can get really boring. <laughs> you know, looking at the number of uh, tax, you know, the amount of tax collected, the number of roads built, and so forth. So, in the archives in Aix-en-Provence, to entertain myself every day, I'd allow myself to call up a file that had a quirky name or an unusual name. And so I saw a file that said destruction of animals in the city. And I said, okay, that's going to be my two o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> dossier that I get to read when I'm falling asleep, just to read something quirky. And I opened it up and on the first page, it was, it was a, a file with about a hundred pages in it, maybe more. And the first page was this report of so many rats were killed in one section of the city. So many rats were killed in the other section of the city. Turn the page, and there's another identical report with the next day different numbers, all hand uh, printed forms, all filled out by hand. And it was just this bizarre mm -hmm. dossier. And there was only these forms in the dossier, no other explanation. So I had just these daily reports of how many rats were killed for about three months, and then didn't know quite what to do with it, but recorded all the numbers of the rats. <laughs> in this database of, of dead rats and um, then tried to figure out what mm -hmm. on earth happened here and I uh, had to triangulate in the archives. So I had to uh, had not much look elsewhere in the archives in Aix-en-Provence, but looking in the archives in Hanoi, I found more material and then the um, looking at memoirs and then looking at medical reports and medical records. I was able to, to again, triangulate my, my sources and build this larger narrative. And it was a section of my dissertation, and several people who saw that section said, "Hey, this is you know, build this up into an article, or more. It's it's pretty good stuff." So I published it as a academic article in I think 2003 in the Journal mm -hmm. of French Colonial History. And I assumed, like most articles in, that we write that go into academic journals, you know, a dozen of my colleagues <laughs> would read it, and it would go into an Orwellian memory hole and just disappear. Um, and then over the next Next decade, I started seeing people would mention it. They go, "Oh, you're the rat guy. I read that piece." <laughs> the yeah. rat guy. I'm not really happy being the rat guy, but okay, you know, like, you know, just just know my name. That's important. <laughs> and um, then I got a call um, from a producer from Freakonomics. I said, <laughs> oh, Freakonomics, <laughs> cool. <laughs> and they said, "Do you want to be on the show? Your article illustrates this economic principle of perverse incentive." I said, "Absolutely, yeah, I'd love to do it." Hung up the phone and then immediately Googled perverse incentive. What's <laughs> I don't know what perverse incentive was at that point. And yeah, lo and behold, my article did illustrate that. So I did that, did that interview, and then that that interview led to a couple other interviews. And I started poking around and seeing that the article was like being assigned in a number of college uh, courses, mm -hmm. even some high school courses. Then I found out that in India, the tenth grade world history curriculum, chapter three, about a third of chapter three is essentially my rat hunt research lifted wow. and put into their textbook. And that this was, you know, a big section of the, the world history curriculum in India. And there's all these, uh, if you go on YouTube and Google rat hunt, there's all these um, videos in Hindi and Punjabi and a variety of South Asian languages that are tutorials for students who are too lazy to read the book. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so people are talking rats. Okay, maybe I should do something more with this. And I was thinking I would I would, could expand it into a traditional monograph. I had enough material, and what I really wanted to do is is give it a mm -hmm. world history perspective, as, as the things that you mentioned earlier. And so I was looking at how to turn this into a traditional monograph. When um, and I was sitting in my office, sort of daydreaming again, and I saw Trevor Getz's book, Abena right. and the Important Men, 
is the first of the Oxford uh, graphic history series. It's sort of the the ur text for us graphic historians. And Trevor, is, who's a wonderful historian, a wonderful guy, has sort of become the dean of graphic history now. Um, so I, I looked at it. And I said, you know, these the stories in the Oxford series are all sort of quirky, interesting stories. Um, Trevor's book, Abina, is about a West African woman who was enslaved right. and used the, the British colonial courts to sue for her freedom, which really overturns many things we sort of assume about power and gender and race uh-huh. and colonialism. Um, and there's a, another book in the series called Mendoza the Jew about a Sephardic Jew who was the heavyweight boxing champion in London for about a decade. And he challenged uh, various notions of uh, British nationalism and, and engaged issues of masculinity and so forth. So I said, you know, the, the rat hunt is, is a sort of a, a quirky, unusual story. Maybe this would work as a graphic history. It, it's so fascinating to me how in the prologue and then again, I guess in the section, it's part four, I guess, the making, making the great Hanoi rat hunt section of this graphic history. You talk about the ar- archival experience. And I love the way you talk about it as one that holds this kind of serendipitous stuff, adventure, but also boredom. I found that sort of a relief. You know, historians often will just say, I love archival research. I just love it. I love it. I love it. And that's sort of all you hear about, that it's difficult and that it's something that historians adore. And I, I loved the the way that this project sort of emerged out of the tedium and boredom of parts of your project um, and that. Yeah, so that was really interesting. Yeah, I, I really wanted to include that um, because the books all have methodology um, that's brought to the student and sort of methodology made more accessible. And um, my students always ask me, like, you know, hey, what's it like to work in the archives? You know, they, I think they've got this sort of Indiana Jones image of me where um, it's much more of a nebbish than that. You know, I'm just. Um, there, there used to be a shirt, an anti-war shirt in the 1980s that had a picture of Uncle Sam pointing at you and it said, join the army, travel to exotic lands, meet fascinating people and kill them. I remember that shirt. Yeah, we should have a, a historian should have a shirt, you know, with, with Cleo, the muse of history, <laughs> saying, you know, become a historian, travel to exotic lands, meet interesting people and sit quietly in their libraries and archives. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, this is... In, in, what I really want to stress is that chance and chance in historical investigation. Several of my projects um, have come from chance. I, I do some other work using sl- slightly pornographic cartoons to uh, hmm. to look at French male sexuality in colonial Hanoi. Um, and those I found by chance. Again, I just noticed they were in the paper and, and began to explore that. So, um, yeah, the, the boredom and chance and the, poking around in the archives, which I, I fear is going to be lost because as the archives are digitized, uh, mm-hmm. wonderful because we've got global access um, uh, and so forth. Um, but just simply finding an odd file or finding the files next to the file or the books next to the book you're looking for, open up all these really serendipitous uh, opportunities for uh, new avenues and connections and so forth. Yeah. Or sticking your hand in a card or <laughs> yeah, that was, getting bitten by a rat. That was, that was in the National Library, right? I was my my good. I mean, that's not funny, but it kind of. Oh, is. it was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my good friend David Altesta warned me not to check out this one um, shelf, one one drawer in the 
the upper left-hand corner <laughs> of the, the, the ignored uh, French uh, card catalog in the National Library. And I forgot. And one day I opened it and it was higher than my eye level. And I reached up and stuck my hand in there and something furry brushed up against my hand and made a loud noise. And I screamed like a, like a child and slammed it shut. And I forget what was in there, but um, <laughs> I evidently I didn't God. need it to get my dissertation done. And uh, There are so many less dramatic stories that made me consider quitting graduate school. <laughs> I feel like that might've done me in, I don't know. Um, but the, but the visualization of that episode mm-hmm. that is in the book in that later part, where you talk about, I think it's in the later part where you're talking about making the great Hanoi rat hunt, yeah. this, this history um, is so great. Tell us a little bit more about the process of being an actual, I mean, we're all characters in our, in our work, yeah. but you're an actual um, drawn character <laughs> in this history. It's definitely this sort of postmodern meta moment of uh, <laughs> in there. Um, well, all, all the books in the series do that. Right. Uh, the Oxford series, the authors included, and they're um, uh, to varying and lesser degrees. I am I'm a total ham, so I'd probably get the most <laughs> most screen time of, of the other historians <laughs> in the book in the books. Um, and I wanted to what I wanted to do with it was just talk about my personal connections mm-hmm. with the history. And in the book, I also reflect on what it means to be uh, an American um, who. I was born uh, six months before the Tet Offensive in uh, the American yeah. War in Vietnam. And my earliest memories are my dad yelling at the television um, during the Christmas bombing of Hanoi. Mm-hmm. And, um, this was this, you know, really important imprint on my childhood. Um, this, you know, what really, I really argue is a criminal war in, uh, in Vietnam. And I wanted to reflect on what it means to be an American in Vietnam at that point. And mm-hmm. so I tried to, that and also um you know i'm i'm looking at in my research i'm looking at the transformation of the city uh, in the space of about 10 years and as i was going to hanoi from the uh eight, from 1997 to what, about 2014 i also witnessed this incredible transformation of hanoi right um, as it comes out of sort of isolated um uh, Stalinist command economy, communism to uh, engagement with the global economy. There's been this huge, huge economic transformation of Hanoi. And I think that the city changes in a way um, in my life that's very similar to the period that I'm researching. So I wanted to, to sort of blend those two because so mm-hmm. much of what I work with is is my experience seeing, studying a, cha- a city that's changing as I'm in a city that's changing, if that, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, it really does. I mean, I, I love those moments where you're talking about your personal connections, where you're talking about your archival experience. And then there are these moments where you kind of pop up. Um, I mean, in a way that I always find difficult to describe, but that you can really do in a graphic history where there'll be this sort of frame of something's going on in late 19th, early 20th century Hanoi, but the, or some other part of the world. And then there's this sort of cut to cut away to you uh, teaching your classes. So the pedagogic mm-hmm. element is there as well. And is that a feature of the the series? Absolutely. Yeah. And of, of the genre, of the graphic yeah. genre. Um, so the, the, the way the story is really put together is it's a, the whole book is a, um, a classroom lecture, mm-hmm. a lecture that I've given a thousand times. Yeah. 
you know, universities in California and China and Indonesia. And I've uh, told the story a zillion times and students, you know, regularly have the same questions. Yeah. Um, and so that the students are at different points are asking me questions in the book and that sort of moves the discussion along. So we're sort of the literary framing device. And I also wanted to um, put the story in there. This is a good story. Mm-hmm. It's a fun story. It's a fun lecture to give to my students. Yeah. Um, and that back and forth between me and the students and the questions they ask, um, I, I thought just made the whole thing more engaging and worked a literary device. It really does. Yeah, but I also wanted to say that the the um, the idea of the the author coming in and out of the text is something that's so common in the graphic genre. Right. Um, and you know, if we go to Art Spiegelman's Mouse, which is you know, it's a it's an oral history. Mm-hmm. It's his father's oral history of um, surviving the Shoah, surviving the Holocaust, and, and Auschwitz. And Mouse is famous for using the literary device of the Jews are mice, the Nazis are cats, the Poles are pigs, which is rather offensive to many Polish readers. The Americans are big slobbery golden retrievers and Labradors. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Naive, silly dogs. And, you know, his his wife is, who's French, is depicted as a frog. You know, that was really creative there, Spiegelman. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, but the, um, the idea of breaking down that fourth wall mm-hmm. uh, um, the um, the author sort of speaking directly to the audience or directly to the reader uh, is so much a part of the series. There's a really beautiful scene in, I think it's the second volume of Mouse, where it shows Spiegelman uh, working in his studio, reflecting upon his own identity. Yeah. And he, he feels like he, he's questioning his identity as an American Jew and wondering if he's, if that's really Jewish and mm-hmm. in the way that his father was. Um, and you see the, the mouse, the mouse face is a mask that's tied onto him. And it's such a little moment, but it's so telling and so powerful. And what I love about the genre is you can do these things and it's scalable. You know, mouse, you can read it in a bunch of different ways. Rat hunt, you can read it in a bunch of different ways and different levels of intensity. Um, so that, that I mean, the genre, I'm just I'm captivated by the genre, and there's just so many fun things to do. It's really interesting, and you know, when you, I haven't read Mouse in, I mean, I've, I've read it a number of times. I used to teach it, but I haven't read it in a long time. But when you mention that moment, I have a very clear picture of it of that of those frames in my in my mind. And when you were talking earlier about watching TV with your dad, or you know. That when we talked about the card catalog getting bitten, that that whole thing, like mm-hmm. these these images stick with you. And I think one of the things I don't get to do in this podcast very often is spend a lot of time talking to people about teaching and thinking about their work as teaching. Because as you say, some of the work we do, parts of it are accessible to our students, but not always. Sometimes we're talking amongst ourselves or whatever. And so that's that's one of the things that's so fascinating about how this book is put together, as you said. Um, and the ways that these images really stick, I wonder if there has been either in the series or just for you in this particular volume, are there moments when putting this all in this graphic form, when you kind of have come up against either for yourself or in conversation with other people, those questions that certainly Spiegelman got when Mouse came out about the choices in the visual representations, about you know how seriously people take the the graphic or the comic book as a form, those kinds of things? Like, were there things that came up either for you or in conversation with 
um, Liz Clark, the illustrator, about how to take what is a kind of quirky story, but also has these very serious elements, and then what it means to kind of put this in this form. Yeah, yeah there were a number of issues. Mm. Um, probably the my biggest concern was the depiction of Asians. Mm. And um, in in the wider history of comics, there's a long history of racist caricatures. Yeah. Um, and I wanted, really wanted to make sure that we – you know, presented the humanity and diversity of the Vietnamese community. And that, that was, that was a huge concern. I think Liz did a fabulous Mm -hmm. job, fabulous job. Like, um, no, no one sort of picked that apart. If anything, the French come off as a little too stereotypical, (laughs) but, but you know, maybe, maybe that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we talked about my son who's nine and his reaction to the cover of the book. Uh, And I just, I feel like I have to mention it here because he looked at the cover of the book, which has this, you know, not only white figure, but dressed all in white with a a white helmet on, surrounded by these poor um, Vietnamese and looked at it and said that this was a sad story. And when I asked him why, he said, this guy, you know, he's all fancy and the other people are poor and the white guy, he said. So yeah, it has that, it it appealed to him and that contrast was definitely there. And I was was actually very nervous about the cover because it's, you know, it's centering white male the white male figure yeah, and runs the risk of, of making the Vietnamese population, the backdrop, the scenery. And with the color, they sort of fade into the backdrop. Mm, yeah. yeah. But, um, I, I think that people have picked up on that, that like the, the white guy is, is not it's like, there's something odd about him being there. He stands out. Like it's, it's problematizing yeah. his white, white male identity and his colonizer identity. So there's, I mean, the, the genre is just so many um, opportunities for um, visual cues and, and sort of asides and things that you can accomplish quickly with a few diagrams, a few illustrations that would take 10, 15 pages oh, yeah. of traditional academic prose to, uh, to get through. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. So I don't think we have time in this conversation, Mike, to talk about all the chapters of the book in detail. So there are what is it, seven, seven chapters before you get to the afterward where you talk about, where you reflect on your time going back and forth to Hanoi and doing this research and kind of bring us up to uh, the more recent stories and, and history of the city. But in those uh, seven chapters, you kind of move from, you know, chapter one, A Tale of Two Cities. Then you explain how Hanoi came to be a French city, who built the city, the questions of some of the things you mentioned earlier when you're telling, telling us the kind of short version of the story, how 
the, there was a kind of illusion of control in empire, then the kind of waves and, and, and epidemics of the plague, and then the hunt itself and the kind of aftermath of, of, of these things. So the, the, the book covers all of that. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you as you're going through all of that is how this genre and how like doing this in graphic history form, but then also how this story sort of allows you to do something that happens in the book that's pretty amazing to me, which is that you really move in space and time from the very local and the very specific, and you know, early 20th century rat hunt that happens in Hanoi to, you know, I'm talking about global imperialism and networks and industrialization, and then also the time, you know, the time of it that, you know, we're in the early 20th century, and then you kind of go back hundreds of years and then forward to, you know, the 2000s when you've done this research and followed up on it. So, yeah, I guess I wanted to ask you a question, that kind of broad question about how space and time works with the story, how you're able to connect to so much in both ways, but then also how the graphic history made that possible. One, one of the things that I, I realized when I was looking at the original article and deciding on how to turn it into a monograph is that I needed to world history it, it up. Right. You know, like put it, give it a, give it a proper world historical context. It's a local Michael history, Mike, not Michael history. That's <laughs> um, a, a, a micro history of a story in Hanoi and that, that could stand on its own. But there's much more there because how you know how did the plague get there? Mm-hmm. Um, how did the the imperial infrastructure create this problem? Why were the French there? Um, and uh, without giving away too much, the French are in Vietnam not for Vietnam; they're in Vietnam to get into mm-hmm. China. So there's a, a larger history of French and Western Europe's engagement with China, and this is really a world history story. So by using the graphic format, I realized that um, I could very easily scale in and out from the local history of Hanoi, put it in a more regional setting of northern Vietnam's connections to China, and then give it a much more global connection with the, the plague pandemic, the history of imperialism, and you know what were the drivers of imperialism? Why, why, why did the French seize Vietnam to get China? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, there's there's two pages where I essentially uh, have distilled Kenneth Pomerantz's uh, foundational work, um, The Great Divergence, about how, how Britain and, and, and China sort of split apart uh, when Britain industrialized. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's a wonderful book, but it's 300 pages <laughs> and I can't assign it to undergraduates. My graduate students have a tough time with it because it's very, very detailed stuff. But the, the graphic format allows me to work that material in without without this massive aside that would probably take, again, 10 pages of traditional academic prose to oh, yeah. situate the story of, the rat, of Hanoi's rat hunt in a uh, uh, regional or global political discussion of political economy. Mm-hmm. So the genre allows us moving in and out in space, yeah. and especially with the maps and um but at the same time, never, never losing sight of the fact that we're talking about right. Hanoi. Um, there's a page where it starts off with a couple of guys, um, Vietnamese guys, sitting on the ground on the sidewalk, smoking a water pipe, and you know, chatting with each other, which is a, vi- a very, very, very quintessentially Hanoi mm-hmm. moment. And that that scales out to maps that show the larger flow of commodities around the world. 
and the imperial infrastructure of steamships and railways that's being created. Yeah. So it's a way, way to link the, the local and the global and bring them together. And, and the artist, Liz Clark, did just such a wonderful job. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's just really, in some of these pages, they're just seamless the way that she was able to um, use, use her work to move us in and out. Yeah, it's really amazing. When you were talking just now, Mike, about bringing in or kind of dealing with major works, I was really intrigued by how the book manages, you know, in the in the frame of this lecture that you're giving to your students, you're also able to reference, you know, other other scholars, and then your kind of conceptual or theoretical framework, like Foucault appears a couple of times. And it's really, it's really interesting to me how you wove in those references perhaps to other texts that your students might read and things that you might be thinking of as you're thinking about how to interpret and understand this episode. Do you want to say uh, any more about that? Yeah, that, that was, that was a great thing I discovered with the book. I mean, they're, they're essentially visual footnotes. Mm-hmm. So like with Foucault, for example, I'm talking about knowledge and power and, and the creation of modern bureaucracies and so forth. Yeah. Um, I, showing the story and then, uh, have this aside with my students where um, I, I give, I give them, it, it's essentially the graphic presentation of what we would do in lecture. Right. Like if, if we're talking about, you know, power, knowledge, um, relationships in class, we're not going to stop <laughs> and go into 30 minutes of Foucault. I mean, maybe you are, but you know, <laughs> might not be, the best, might not be the, the best historical lecture in terms of just the narrative, but we make these references. Yeah. So, you know, you know, as, you know, look, look at discipline and punish, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, so I was able to work that in. And um, and also it was really fun to sort of show the students wrestling with the information I'm giving them and their, the way they're picking up on the um, theoretical and methodological cues and asides that I give them. The the whole book, and I'm, I'm guessing that this, I haven't read um, other books in this series. I mean, I've looked at them, but I haven't read them all. The whole book is sort of structured in the in these parts that have, you know, there's the graphic history uh, in part one, in which you talk about coming to the story and then tell the story leading up to uh, and then including the, the great rat hunt. And then you have a section of primary sources, a third part that has historical context that have more of the maybe, I don't know, narrative or textbook type essays focused on certain themes that would give people context and background. And then that making of section that we talked about. Um, And then some suggestions for, in the fifth part, some suggestions for using the great rat hunt in the classroom. I guess I just wanted to ask a little bit about uh, how you think about this book being used uh, by instructors, by students, what your experience has been yourself or what you've heard from other people who have maybe used the, either the episode, you're, you talked a little bit about using the article, but yeah, like how you imagine this as a, as a teaching tool. Well, I designed it to be scalable. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that this, uh, this semester, what are we, fall of 2019, that it's being taught in um, uh, lower division history surveys, upper division mm-hmm. courses, graduate seminars. I know there's a couple of graduate seminars that are using it, methodology seminars. Yeah. And um, there's also been, um, I've gotten some feedback from high school teachers who are interested in using it. So it can be read in different levels um, uh, according to what your purposes are. Uh, I also brought in a lot of the primary sources Mm -hmm. 
because these serve as um, what would have been footnotes throughout the whole book. Right. So as you re- if you read the primary sources, um, you'll see, oh, that's you know on page thirty four, that's what he's referencing, or this is you know the descriptions of the plague in in San Francisco's Chinatown or burning down um, uh, the Chinatown in Honolulu. Like, oh, that's that's the context for this uh, the global phenomenon of the plague, the third plague pandemic, and the way in which it's racialized, and the the very what I think are the really important connections with sinophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a major theme I tried to bring into the, into the book. Um, so this this fits with the the layout of all the Oxford books, but it it really sort of gives the um, the academic weight, the the intellectual weight. Like here here here's much of my material that I'm using that would have been you know 14 pages of right. footnotes and an extended bibliography, but I'm giving you the sources. And it also allows for um, instructors to uh, to teach it in a way that um, the students can do their own their own research and use their own use primary sources from this section of the book to write about the book, yeah. or to, or to write about plague or sinophobia or imperialism in general. So it's a that that section serves as a mini archive for students who. Um, who are working with this material. Yeah. When I started, I mean, I've spent a fair amount of time with the book. And when I started, you know, I read the graphic history section and then started sort of reading the next sections in order. But also as I think about how I might teach this or use it in different classes in different ways, think, oh yeah, you could jump from, you know, you could read some primary sources first and then read the graphic history. You could read some context and then go back and forth. I mean, I can see the way in which the book is set up in a certain order, but that you could do it in a different order and it could still work and make sense just maybe in a different way, in a different context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, um, the, the collection of the primary sources is also similar to something that the um, that Alan Moore did. And Alan Moore is the graphic novelist who did uh, Watchmen? Mm-hmm. This is most famous uh, work and, and a must-read for everyone. I mean, that 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 book, that that book actually inspired the way in which I set up some of the um, the pages in Rat Hunt uh, because it's, there's a huge emphasis on simultaneity mm-hmm. and events events happening at the same time and people not being aware of them, but it being essential to understand that they're going on at the same time. Yeah, um, and the way the way which that book zooms in and out of stories. But he's got another book uh, called From Hell, which they, they made a Johnny Depp movie out of it. And it's about Jack oh, the Ripper. Right. Yeah. And Alan Moore's research and his theories on who Jack the Ripper was. And um, the book has about 40 pages of notes at the end. And every, every page in the book um, is listed in the back and it has which primary sources he used to, huh. to write up that page. It's really cumbersome, yeah. It's not not ideal, but he's trying to do, you know, academic work with this uh, this project, which he claims is a is more of a history than a, a, a graphic novel as a work of mm-hmm. fiction, right? Um, so that was that. I, I began to realize the importance of that. Like, we need to know where these sources come from, and better yet, if the reader can actually uh, read some of them, engage with yeah. them. It will make it a make it a stronger project. Um, we've talked a little bit about you know decisions that you've made about how you wanted this to look and certain pages and that kind of thing. And then I just wonder if you could 
say a little bit more, Mike, about working with Liz Clark, like working with an illustrator that sort of transitioned for you from what mm-hmm. you're trained to do, you know, the writing and the footnotes and all of that, and how that process even works. I mean, I, I, I don't even know. Like, what are, any thoughts that you have on that? Yeah, you know, strangely enough, I did not learn how to uh, storyboard a comic book in graduate huh. school. How weird. <laughs> That was something, something that yeah, just wasn't covered. I learned a lot of other things. I learned all kinds of great stuff, but, you know, Tyler Stovall did not teach me that, uh, nor, nor uh, Terry Burke. Um, so I had, to, I had to learn that on the go. And, and I just read lots of graphic novels and graphic memoirs and graphic journalism. Joe Sacco's got uh, two fabulous books, one Palestine, which won a, Pul- a Pulitzer, and the other one's Safe Area Garage on, um, mm-hmm. on the genocide in Yugoslavia. And those were really inspirational. But um, so I, I, I read and I, I looked at comic theory and um, there's a fantastic book, absolutely fantastic book. I can't recommend it highly enough called um, Unflattening. Hmm. And it's by um, Nick Susanus, who is now at San Francisco State. And he was, again, his PhD at Columbia in education. And he did his dissertation in graphic format. And then got huh. it published right away, and it is absolutely brilliant. And it's it's a work of philosophy that engages the medium and talks about the way, what things you can do with the medium and the, the interplay between text and image, and the way in which the image can start guiding how you read the text. It's, it's just absolutely brilliant. So, so I, I you know I do a lot of reading, and then um, fortunately, I'm working on the 1890s, early 1900s. And there's lots of photographs and lithographs and maps. So I was able to um, give Liz Clark, the absolutely amazing artist mm-hmm. who did the illustrations, uh, multiple pictures of the same building and then show her on the map, you know, here's where it would be. Hey, let's put the, these characters on this street corner with that building behind them. The first time that she did that, like, my jaw dropped. <laughs> it was so cool. And I'd, I'd been, you know, I'd been in the city and seen these buildings firsthand and so knew what it was like to look up at these buildings. Just absolutely amazing to see, again, what, I, what I'd been doing in traditional academic prose come to life in an illustration. Oh, yeah. But I, I already, I had, and I'd already been thinking about visual images and history. I do other work on um, uh, history of cartoons mm-hmm. in Hanoi in the in, in Saigon in the 1890s and up to about 1915, and there's a very lively local press that um, that had these various cartoons and caricatures and so forth. So I've, I did a did a book on on an artist from Saigon. Who did, who published a book in 1913. So I worked on him, and I've written on some of the other um, uh, other cartoon artists. I've got at least two, three uh, academic articles on that subject. So I thought a lot about the interplay between uh, cartoon images and, and historical research as primary sources. Mm-hmm. So it was really hard to create a secondary source using that um, that model. I had also done um, the year before I started the Rat Hunt. I had we'd made a film in Phnom Penh mm. on French colonial architecture in Phnom Penh, where we shot on location. We had a grant from the um, Center for Khmer Studies, and um, we'd spent about a month. Wow shooting in these old French villas and old French offices and so forth, the old, the old police station, which was abandoned and, and very, very spooky. <laughs> um, so I thought a lot about being 
being present in the city that you're studying. And I narrate, I narrate the film. So that was actually part of an inspiration for inserting my character into the rat hunt. Cause I'd have done this previously of, you know, walking the viewer through colonial Phnom Penh in Cambodia. Um, you know, what, here, here's what the city looks like. Here's this old building, blah, 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 blah. I'm trying to think, Mike, how to ask this next question in a way that doesn't sound like it's my perspective on this. <laughs> um, but what do you think about the the state of, you know, graphic history in relationship to the other professional work that we do? Like, have you brushed up against um, this? Like, this is a real book, right? That, that's what I would want to say. But have you brushed up against any of that sort of... Uh, any pushback? Yeah, or just like, well, this is nice, but it's not... You, you talked about the primary sources and stuff. Yeah. yeah. This is nice, but where's your real work? <laughs> Which yeah. I mean, anybody who's read it, that wouldn't be. I wouldn't think that would be the conclusion. But I think there is still this. You know, yeah. What do you think about all that? That kind of you resistance know, to this form. I did this after I got tenure. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. Um, uh, I I think the work stands on uh, its its research and, and definitely comes across as a real piece of academic mm-hmm. history. But I do get some raised eyebrows uh, when I say I did a graphic history. You know, what is that? Yeah. And, you know, I have to keep correcting people that it's not a graphic novel. Not, yes. It's a work of fiction. Um, this is a piece of research. And, um, there, you know, I, I did have one reviewer that uh, said, hey, the content of this is great, but why is it in a graphic format? You know, <laughs> did, didn't take the graphic format seriously. Right. Um, that said... Um, I've had really positive reception, um, got a great review in the American historical review and mm-hmm. uh, journal of Asian studies has a very positive review. And, uh, um, my colleagues seem to be taking it seriously and taking it as a, a serious piece of research. I mean, I think that's great. I think we're just sort of in this moment, right. Where we're talking about how to expand our definition of what the work is. I mean, I'm, I have a podcast. I know you do too. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm, I'm a, these are the kinds of things yeah. that, you know. You know I've, I've got a podcast. I've made a short film with, mm-hmm. uh, with, with a major research grant. We used it to make a short film mm-hmm. that we put up, 29 minute film that we put up on YouTube. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of things that our colleagues are doing in terms of digital humanities yeah. and making, um, making serious work more accessible and accessible to a wider audience. Um, I think that this, uh, rat hunt as a graphic history fits into that uh, that push. Yeah, well, and it sounds like it did before it was even in graphic form, right? Yeah. Like the connection to Freakonomics yeah, and yeah. all of these people picking up on this episode. Oh yeah, no. I, I, when I when I saw that that it had been cited in, uh, you know, it was used in the Indian high school curriculum and odd citations, I began to do is like some more serious searches, and it's cited in all sorts of odd places. Uh, an, an article in Bank Director magazine. I don't. I don't. Did you let your subscription to Bank Director uh, lap? You know, uh, it, it, evidently there's a Bank Director magazine, and um, there was a whole uh, article that, that drew from the Rat Hunt, and wow, by a, a lot of a lot of um, writers in business. Yeah, you're in boardrooms around America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which um, I, you know, I I don't know how this happened, um, and it's. It's sort of the, you know, the crazy afterlives of our research. Where are they going to go? Yeah, yeah. Um, which, uh, yeah, I, I, I just think is wonderful. And um, 
you know, it's the, it's the, it, it, and that fits with the quirkiness of the original story, the original research of this issue of, of rats and plague and unintended consequences and perverse incentives and so forth. Well, speaking of afterlives, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've been working on since you finished the great Hanoi rat hunt? Right, right. So I'm working on a, a new project. Um, I'm actually writing up the manuscript right now. I spent uh, five months in Cambodia on a Fulbright uh, working on this with trips to Vietnam and Indonesia. And I'm doing a comparative history of the representation of Cold War era mass violence hmm. in an Indonesian, Vietnamese, and Cambodian museum. Um, the Cambodian Museum is the Tool Slang Genocide Museum. It's probably the most famous. This is the, uh, the former uh, torture center of the Khmer Rouge. It's the museum with the famous mug shots of the prisoners before they were tortured and right. later executed. Uh, comparing that with the War Remnants Museum in Ho Chi Minh City, um, Saigon, which used to be called the Exhibition Hall of American and Puppet Regime War Crimes, but they've changed it to War Remnants, which is a sort of vague, unclear um, uh the, the name's just sort of vague and unclear. And that's a museum of the uh, of the American War in Vietnam. And then in Jakarta, there's a museum that um, all Indonesians know, but barely anybody outside of Indonesia has ever heard of it. And it's called the, uh, the Museum of the Treachery of the Indonesian Communist Party. And it's a, a whole museum devoted to the murder of a handful of officers and a young girl, um, about six officers and a young girl, and they were murdered in a, um, a coup d'etat. And the right-wing military used that as the pretext to slaughter half a million to a million people who were members of the Indonesian Communist Party or associated with the Communist Party. They, wow. they killed union leaders, um, leaders of feminist organizations, people who sang the wrong songs at public performances. Mm. So it was the, the murder of this handful of people was the pretext for this mass murder of um of Indonesians and exterminating the Indonesian left in the 1960s. And the museum doesn't talk about the mass murder. Wow. It only talks about these um these officers and this little girl that were allegedly killed by the communists. That's very very debatable and unclear. Mm. So I'm comparing these three different museums all built about the same time in the 1970s and 1980s in late Cold War Southeast Asia. They're all Southeast Asian self-representations of uh, this experience of mass violence. And they've all got very important um, sort of political agendas that they're trying to convey that are so central to uh, post-colonial state formation hmm. in Indonesia, in Vietnam, and in Cambodia. So I'm working on those two. And hopefully that will be off to publishers by January or February, maybe. <laughs> I don't know if I want to sign off on that yeah but um that's my goal so that's uh that's a current project well that all sounds super fascinating and i hope you'll keep me posted on you know when those come out and uh, any any thoughts about whether or not you'd take on another graphic history project i don't know i think i think maybe we should be uh limited like term limits you know we should, <laughs> we should be historians should do one graphic history in our career that said that said um 2017 was the um, the bicentennial of uh, cholera as a pandemic disease, huh. and which it's st it started because of a volcanic eruption in Indonesia, which messed up the currents in the Bay of Bengal as the British were pushing um, 
pushing um, peasants closer to the coastline. And these various things happened that in this new disease, the disease transformed and cholera became truly pandemic, whereas before it had been localized. Huh. And um, I was re- it was really disappointed not that not to see any bicentennial commemorations of cholera, especially as right now we're seeing the world's worst cholera epidemic right. in history in Yemen. And that's going underreported, but that's going on like as we as we speak and it's been going on for the past few years. So I I've considered there's a there's a graphic medicine series. Huh. Um the books are much shorter and it's to um to convey various aspects of of health and, and medical history. Um so like maybe uh maybe a graphic <laughs> history of cholera would be um uh, would be a good uh, good option there, but I'm also working with um, cartoons as primary sources and doing right. doing more more work there to get at colonial culture. Um, and I love cartoons because they're they're moments of honesty. Hmm. They're, they're conversation behind closed doors. It's not the official voice. It's not the not mediated by the state. Um, jokes have to be accurate for them to work. Hmm. Uh, they have to they have to make sense to uh, the person who's uh, consuming the cartoon or or the joke and so forth. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pursue that, um, especially in regards to doing histories of um, masculinity, white masculinity, and white male sexuality in the in the colonial setting. Well, Mike, I just want to thank you so much for writing this book and for joining me. It was an absolute pleasure, Roxanne. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.